And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you remember Bob Dylan? Yeah, if you got any snow on top, you'll know who Bob Dylan is. Uh, in 1979, he wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody, which happens to be the title of the message today. Uh, you know, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, I don't know whether Dylan was inspired by our text, but his song certainly reflects the truth of our passage this morning. Paul says that either you were a slave of sin or you are a slave of obedience, verse 16, or a slave of righteousness, verses 18 and 19, or a slave of God, verse 22. Un uh, unbelievers, they mistakenly think that they are free when they cast off God and, and follow their own lusts. But according to Peter, they are just simply slaves of corruption. God has freed us from sin, but not to live as we please. Rather, He frees us from sin to make us slaves of righteousness. you got to serve somebody. Charles Spurgeon observed, Free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen. I have met with will and plenty of it, but it has either been, it has either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed, blessed bonds of grace. End quote. So the choice is not, should I give up my freedom so that I can submit to God? Rather, it is, should I serve sin or should I serve God? you got to serve somebody. Paul is telling us either you are a slave of sin resulting in death or you are a slave of obedience resulting in righteousness. Well, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come before you and to hear from your word. We ask that you would, uh, Lord, speak to our hearts, each and every one of us, to understand what it means uh, about who we are actually serving. That's what this passage is about. So, God, I pray that you would uh, bring it to bear on our hearts and that we'd be drawn closer to you through it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, clearly Paul's theme is slavery. The word slave um, or enslaved, it occurs eight times uh, in verses 15 to 23. Also, obedience or obedient and obey, they occur four times in that same passage. So the issue here is whose slave are you? Do you obey sin or do you obey God? It's, it's that simple. Now, there really are no other options. And I want to work through our text under three headings. Number one, if you think that being under grace means that you are free to sin, then you do not understand God's grace. Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Now, this verse should sound familiar to you. Um, it's very similar, yet a little different, to verses 1 and 2. Paul there says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, Paul was responding to the, the possible logical conclusion to his statement from chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, the wrong conclusion would be, so let's sin a lot so that we can get a lot of grace. But in verse 15, Paul is responding to a, a potential critic who would abuse his statement from verse 14, uh, you are not under law but under grace. This critic would have said, well, if we're not under law but under grace, then we're free to sin without any worry of condemnation. 
So in this case, we don't uh, sin so that grace may abound. We actually sin because grace has replaced law. So we can do whatever we want. And of course, Paul responds just as he did his verse 2 with the strongest possible condemnation, may it never be, or by no means. I'm used to NASB still, may it never be. By no means. As I said last week, the subject, subject of law and grace, it's often been taken to two extremes that, that we must avoid. Some have feared that if we emphasize God's grace too much, people are going to fall into sin and licentiousness where they just don't care about the law. And so they virtually put back people back under the law by emphasizing rules for what they consider to be holy living. Often these are not biblical commands, but rather conservative cultural norms or man-made rules that are propped up by Bible verses taken out of context. Invariably, legalists, they don't focus on the sins of the heart, such as pride or the lack of love for God, but rather on outward sins that can easily be judged. Now, the Pharisees and the Judaizers, uh, they were the leading proponents of this false, superficial spirituality. On the other end of the spectrum are those who have concluded, well, if we're under grace, then sin doesn't matter. These folks see God as, as a loving, tolerant, nice old guy in the sky who would never you know, judge anyone. So they mistake grace to mean that God is not concerned about our sin. Of course, that leads to licentiousness. It's important to understand that God's true grace is not the balance point between legalism and licentiousness. In other words, it's not somewhere in the middle. Rather, legalism and licentiousness, they're two sides of the same coin whose operating principle is the flesh. Just think about it. The legalist acting in the flesh takes pride in his religious practices. He condemns those who do not match up to his standards of righteousness while he congratulates himself on his performance. He imagines that by keeping the law, he can actually recommend himself to God. But he's operating in the flesh. He's not examining his heart before God. And it's obvious that the licentious person is operating in the flesh. He's giving in to the lust of the flesh, and he's justifying it by equating grace with tolerance for sin. So both legalism and licentiousness stem from the sinful flesh. And God's grace is opposed to both of these, not as their balance point, not as somewhere in the middle, but as a completely different way of relating to God. Preaching God's grace always exposes us to the charge of licentiousness from the legalist. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It's going to happen to us too. But those making the charge don't understand grace at all, and that's what Paul's strong reaction shows by no means. If we have responded to the good news that God freely justifies the ungodly through faith alone, apart from any works, then we will hate the sin that put our Savior on the cross. We are now identified with Him in His death to sin and resurrection to life. That new life of Christ within us, it manifests itself in obedience to God. John recognizes this in his uh, first epistle. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. As Paul shows in verse 19, lawlessness is the mark of a slave of sin. Righteousness is the mark of the one who has received God's grace. 
So you can test yourself by this. If you think that being under grace means that you are free to sin or that you can just shrug off your sin and, and say, oh, it's no big deal, then you do not understand God's grace. However, if motivated by God's love and grace in giving you His Son, you know you now hate your sin, you fight your sin, you strive to be more obedient, then you understand grace. God's grace instructs us. It, 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 it trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's what Paul told Titus. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that the proper result of God's grace is to make us slaves of righteousness, not lawlessness. Well, number two, uh, the only options are you give yourself to be a slave of sin resulting in death, or you give yourself to be a slave of obedience resulting in righteousness. Paul again appeals, appeals to knowledge. In this case, it's common knowledge of just a general principle. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, in that culture, sometimes a man had to sell himself into slavery because of financial difficulties. And once you did that, you were a slave of the one to whom you sold yourself. You had to obey him as your master. Paul's point here, though, is not so much that a slave has to obey his master, but rather that the master you obey shows whose slave you are. If you obey sin, it shows that you're a slave of sin headed toward eternal death. If you obey God, it shows that you're His slave, resulting in righteousness. Now, Paul doesn't directly say that we are enslaved to God until verse 22. But if there is a change of masters, you obey your new master. So the master you obey shows whose slave you now are. Why does Paul contrast being a slave of sin with being a slave of obedience? Uh, we might have expected him to say here, a slave of God, right? You're a slave of sin or a slave of God. Well, he uses obedience because he wants to make it clear that not being under the law does not imply that we are now free to sin. Being under grace means that we present ourselves as slaves of obedience to God. Now, this obedience is not the means of our salvation. It's actually the result of our salvation, so while slavery to sin leads to death, slavery to obedience leads to righteousness, not life. We are not saved by our obedience, but rather we are saved by faith that results in a life of obedience. Now, I suspect that if they had to describe themselves in terms of verse 16, that many professing Christians would put themselves somewhere in the middle They'd say, well, I'm not really a slave of sin, but it'd probably be a stretch to say that I'm a slave of obedience. I'm kind of in both groups. But guess what? Paul doesn't give that as an option. It's very clear. Either Christ is your master and you obey Him, or sin is your master and you obey it. There is no middle ground. You can't have both Christ and sin as your master. Now, if that sounds extreme... Keep in mind that, that Paul is simply echoing the teaching of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 6? No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
In Matthew 7, Jesus gives three examples of this one of only two ways. In other words, there's no middle ground. He says that there are two and only two gates. The narrow gate leads to life, and the broad gate leads to destruction. There's no middle gate. He says there are two and only two types of trees. There are good trees that bear good fruit, and there are bad trees that bear bad fruit. He says there are two kinds of builders who build two kinds of houses. Wise builders build on the rock. Foolish builders build on the sand. The wise builders represent those who hear Jesus' words and obey them. The foolish builders hear Jesus' words but do not obey. So everybody serves somebody or something. You can tell who a person serves by his behaviors, by his actions. Those who live in sin, they're slaves of sin. Those who live in obedience are slaves of Jesus Christ. Those who are slaves of sin are not under grace, and they're headed for eternal death. Those who are slaves of Christ, they've tasted His grace. They're growing in righteousness, and they're headed for eternal life. So are you a slave of sin or a slave of Christ? Now, how does a person go from being a slave of sin to being a slave of God and righteousness? Well, that's point number three. The only way that you can change from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness is for God to free you from sin by changing your heart. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, Paul here is describing the great change that came over the Roman believers when God saved them. These changes are true of everyone that God has saved. It means you, if you're in Christ. Now, these are radical changes, not minor changes. From being slaves of sin... They became obedient from the heart to sound a teaching. From being in bondage to sin, they were freed to become slaves of righteousness. Uh, so there was a change of lordship from some, uh, Satan's domain of darkness to God's domain of righteousness. There was a change of thinking so that now they submit to biblical truth. There was a change of heart so that they are now willing and glad slaves of God. They love Him and they hate their former master. There was also a change of will, so that now they obey God's standards of righteousness and not sin. Now, four quick related thoughts here. A, salvation is neither a human project nor a joint human-divine project. Rather, salvation is of the Lord. Slaves of sin are not able to free themselves by their own efforts. In fact, slaves of sin often don't even realize that they are slaves, and they resent anyone telling them that they are. Jesus told the Jews who had superficially believed in Him, If you continue in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you know what their response was? We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you, uh, you will become free? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Does anybody remember the fact that Israel was, had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years? 
all through the book of Judges, they had fallen under oppressive leaders, foreigners. The northern tribes had fallen to Assyria in 722 B.C. The, the southern tribes fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. Later, they came under the cruel reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. As they spoke that day with, with Jesus, Israel was under the thumb of Rome. And yet they claim, eh, we've never been slaves to anybody. Jesus goes on to make it clear that he was talking about slavery to sin. To be freed from that cruel master, the son would have to make them free. Now, verse Paul 18, Paul uses the passive verb that they were freed from sin. They didn't free themselves. They were freed from sin to show that God alone can free us. It's not a joint project where he gives us a boost and we contribute our share. This is also seen in that Paul says in verse 17, thanks be to God. He doesn't say thanks be to God and, oh, yeah, you guys deserve a little credit too for your part. No, we were enslaved to sin and loving it. We hated the light. Why? Because it exposes our evil deeds. So when God graciously freed us from sin, he gets all the thanks. He gets all the glory. Paul puts it this way at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that we are saved because God chose us as foolish, weak, lowly, and despised sinners so that he might shame the world's wise, mighty, and exalted so that no one may boast before the Lord. Salvation is totally God's doing, not ours. Well, B, the way God changes us is bringing our mind, our heart, and our will into submission to His Word. First, note that God changes us by bringing our minds under the teaching of the Word of God. Scholars debate why Paul says standard of teaching or example of teaching or pattern of teaching rather than just teaching. We can't be too dogmatic here, but my guess from the context is that he's contrasting his teaching of the gospel of grace with a false teaching of both the legalists and the antinomians. Now, don't let that word throw you. That's, those are the ones who are licentious. They don't, anti means against. Nomos is law in the Greek, so antinomian means against the law. Yeah, we don't care about the law. We're not under the law. They're, they're licentious. So he's referring to the kind of teaching that he has set forth so far in Romans and especially to the bottom line test that sound doctrine leads to godly behavior. That's what he's been battling this entire chapter. Shall we continue in sin? No. Why? Because sound doctrine actually leads to godly behavior, to righteousness. But God doesn't just change our minds to conform to sound teaching. Also, he changes our hearts. There are scholars out there who can study the Bible in the original languages and can dissect it like a biologist dissects a, a living specimen. But the truth doesn't affect their heart. Jonathan Edwards, he soundly argues in his treatise on religious affections, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. That is to say, God changes our hearts. He changes our desires. We must understand the truth with our minds, but our hearts must also rejoice in and willingly embrace the truth. Now, the evidence of this change of mind and this change of heart is that our wills now gladly obey the truth. To be obedient from the heart is not grudging outward obedience, but cheerful inner 
obedience. In obedience, it's obedience on the heart level where God alone sees. It's not outward obedience simply to impress others with how spiritual we are. We'll see the teaching is not committed to the Christians, but rather the Christians are committed to the teaching. Now, you might expect Paul to say that the teaching was committed to the Christians, and actually the King James translates it that way. But the proper translation is, to which you were committed. And this lines up with the slavery analogy that Paul uses here. The idea is that becoming a Christian means being put under the authority of God's Word. We don't sit in judgment of God's Word, but His Word sits in judgment of us. A person who has come under God's grace in Christ submits to God's Word. Now, John Calvin, in, in a rare reference to his own conversion, he described it as God subduing and bringing my mind to a teachable frame. Well, D, when God saves you, He frees you from sin, and He makes you a slave of righteousness. Verse 18 is not an exhortation. That's verse 19. We'll look at that next week. It's a statement of fact. He says, and having been set, set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul here is summing up his argument from verses 16 and 17, which refutes the false charge of verse 15 that we are not under law but under grace, and therefore we can shrug off our sin. As in verse 16, Paul makes it clear that there are two and only two options. Either you're enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to righteousness. Now, also, this is true of all Christians. It's not just true of, you know, uh, some Christians who have had a dramatical spiritual experience that, that ends up freeing them from the sin. No, it's true of all who used to be in Adam but now are in Christ. They have been freed from sin and became slaves of righteousness. Now, this doesn't mean that we become sinlessly purposive. We've talked about this multiple times, particularly here in chapter 6. Neither does it mean that we are free from the old sin nature or that we will never be tempted by sin again. No. It means that the power of sin over us has been broken so that we no longer uh, are under sin as our master. We do not obey sin as the normal course of our daily lives. Rather, we now obey righteousness. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that means that we have come under the power and control and influence of righteousness. You see, formerly we served sin. We obeyed its desires and its urges. But now we serve righteousness. We obey God. We obey His Word. Now the irony is that true freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is the ability to now do what is right. True freedom is slavery to God and His righteousness. Now, I, I close with a story and, and a question. The story is about a bazaar in a village in India. A farmer had brought in a covey of quail, and each bird had a string tied around its foot, and the string led to a ring that sat on top of a, a vertical stick. And so the birds just continually walked in circles. Um, no one wanted to buy any quail until a devout Hindu Brahmin came along. His religious respect for all life and his compassion for these birds led him to ask the price of the quail. He got the price and then he said to the merchant, I want to buy all of them. 
And after he paid the more money, he ordered the merchant, okay, now set them all free. The merchant was kind of surprised, and the Brahmin insisted, cut the strings and set them free. So the farmer cut the strings. Guess what they did? They continued to walk around and around in a circle. They wouldn't move, so he shooed them off. That didn't help. They only flew a few yards and landed, and guess what they did? Started walking in circles again. Do you see where I'm headed with this? God didn't free you from sin so that you would keep going in circles as if you were bound to it. He freed you from sin so that you would become a slave of obedience to Him, resulting in righteousness. You've got to serve somebody. The question is, who are you serving? Sin or God? Let's pray. Father, thank you again just for your blessed word. Uh, it trains us, it convicts us, it, it opens our eyes to reality, to the truth that is. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that this morning. And if there's anybody out here that is still a slave of sin, have, have not come to you for forgiveness, I pray that you would open their eyes to see Jesus for just who he is, Lord, and that you would draw him to him. So God, uh, speak to our hearts this morning, do a work that will give you praise and honor for. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah, if you're sitting out there and you, you recognize, yeah, I'm a slave to sin, okay? Not that I struggle with sin. Here's the thing about being uh, under the domain of darkness. Pretty much, you don't struggle with sin. You may a little bit because you're, you're conscious. Maybe you were raised by good folks and you know it to be wrong, but it really doesn't bother you to do that wrong, all right, if, you're, if, if that's you, all right, then, then maybe you need to meet Jesus. <laughs> maybe you need to come to him and, and, and ask God to forgive you your sins. He's the one that you have sinned against. And then to trust what Christ did on the cross. He came and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, so that he could be a faithful high priest on our behalf. He died on the cross as that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Tyler said earlier, he rose three days later, uh, which vindicated his death on our behalf. I, I you know, encourage you this morning, if you don't know God through his son Jesus Christ, today's the day. Paul says today is the day of salvation. Don't run away from it. Run to it. Run to God this morning. If you're a believer, I hope that you're just able to examine your life and look at the overall tenor of your life. Right? I've said this before. You know, our sanctification is going to be some people it's like this, some people it's like this. That's up, I honestly believe that's up to God. But I promise you, whether it's this or whether it's this, it's up and down the whole way. <laughs> but are you, are you uh, trending upwards over time? Do you look more like Christ today than you did two years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? I hope so. That's what this passage is about. You are no longer under the reign of sin. Because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you as a believer, you now have, you now have the power to say no. <laughs> I hope that you're doing that. I hope that if anybody else looks at your life, they're going, oh wow, they're, they're, they're a slave of righteousness. They're obedient to God's word. That's what Paul would look at. He'd say, check your lives. Jesus would say the same thing. I hope that you are following Christ closer day by day by day. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. 
You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com. <laughs>